Who are your villains? I could only think of Lord Voldemort. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I might pass on this one. <laughs> Sounds like your answer is Lord Voldemort. That's a good villain. He's all encompassing. I think so. Yeah. Pretty clear cut. Bad guy. <laughs> Welcome to The Workplace, where we talk about the cultures we work in and how to make them better for everyone. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with Gina Krauss-Vilmar from Upwardly Global about why immigrants and refugees are a motherload of untapped talent and how helping them integrate into the American workforce benefits literally everyone. Stick around after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we break down the big ideas from the interview into bite-sized morsels you can use to shape your own workplace culture. Gina Krauss-Vilmar is the president and CEO of Upwardly Global, a nonprofit that helps highly skilled immigrants and refugees regain their careers, contribute to their new communities, and realize their full potential. In her 13 years of experience across the non- and for-profit sectors, Gina has worked with government agencies, corporations, and the United Nations to craft and implement solutions that have helped thousands of refugees and immigrants integrate into the workforce and build a life in their new homes. Gina was interviewed by me, and her vision for the future is so hopeful you might just forget how dark the present seems. Let's get to it. Welcome to the workplace, Gina. It's great to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Your company, Upwardly Global, just celebrated its 20th anniversary with a gala fundraiser. It was a virtual gala, of course. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk a bit about another job you've had, your first job. What was the first job you ever had? The first job I ever had um, was actually working at Walgreens as a cashier when I was 16 years old. So um, that was a great experience in terms of learning uh, diversity of skills and hard work um, and um, really working directly with customers. Um, the, the first professional job I've ever had was working at a company called Commonics which is a for-profit consulting firm that works internationally. And, um, and I think what was interesting about that job is really when I took the interview, they asked a question, which was, tell me about your intercultural sensitivity. And I thought that was an interesting question. And I, having worked internationally for close to 13 to 15 years, have taken it for granted because so much of working internationally is working with people from different cultures and backgrounds and perspectives and having now had the privilege of coming back home and working in the U.S., really reflecting on, on that job and, and really that aspect of the work that was so integrated into the culture and the, the role. So it sounds like you, you liked the culture at the, the first professional job you had. Um, 
do you think that it's shaped your expectations for all of your other jobs? I think it's shaped my expectations in terms of sort of having a literacy around how do you navigate differences and the normalization of that. Um, so really this expectation of everybody works with people from different places and backgrounds and experiences, and that's absolutely normal to have that in your workplace. And it is also expected to navigate around that um, in a positive way. And, and so I think that has been also probably what attracts me to working at Upwardly Global, which is an organization that works on behalf of immigrants and refugees, and many of our colleagues um, being immigrants and refugees. Yeah. So speaking of Upwardly Global and its mission, uh, your goal is to eliminate employee barriers or employment barriers for skilled immigrants and refugees and help them integrate into the professional U.S. workforce. But I'm curious about your own personal mission. What drives you? And how do you think it led to you being a CEO of an organization like Upwardly Global? Yes. Um, so I, I would say I feel like one of the luckiest people because I am so humbled to be working on behalf of advancing this social cause, this mission. Um, I myself am the child of immigrants. My mom was or is a skilled immigrant from India who um, worked three survival jobs to put food on the table to raise myself and my three sisters. And so I think there's a real passion and alignment around the work that I do for that. My own personal goal is very much resonates with that, that journey of my, my life, um, which is really a world where marginalized people, that includes women, girls, the poor, refugees, immigrants, where they have power and agency over their own lives and are able to shape and influence our communities, our workplaces, our culture. Um, and I think what is, is unique is, is I truly believe that business is positioned to reimagine what inclusive and equitable culture looks like. Uh, you know, there are 162 million people in the U.S. workforce. Work is really where we all interact. It is an, can be an incredible equalizer. Um, we spend about one third of our lives at work. And so if we can reimagine how we create sort of that space where individuals can come together and help shape and influence what workplace culture looks like, what kind of a spillover effect that would have in our communities. Um, so that's my mission. It's very much driven through my own personal history and, um, and I'm very glad to be able to realize it at Upglow. So I'd like to go back. You mentioned that your, your mother was uh, an immigrant who came here and had lots of skills and maybe had trouble translating those into the U.S. workforce. I'm curious, what toll do you think it took on her and other immigrants and refugees to not be able to use their skills, to be forced to accept jobs maybe below their training and ability? You know, it's so interesting because we talk, I talk to so many of our job seekers and I, I think we take for granted sometimes how much of our professional or work lives are so critical to our identity. Mm -hmm. And I think it really comes down to this desire to be able to contribute and to be seen as valuable. Um, and so I think it does take a huge emotional toll um, and also a toll around what does belonging look like? right? Like how do I belong in a place where 
I am somewhat invisibilized and part of my identity has been stripped away from me. A, a lot of our job seekers actually who work in survival jobs, you have engineers from Venezuela who are working in large oil companies in Venezuela are now um, stocking shelves um, at grocery stores and really just not even sharing that part of their identity with their new coworkers um, because there's a sense of shame with it. I think the other piece around the pandemic, um, we do work with internationally trained doctors and many of them during this pandemic have felt incredibly, I think one person said, I feel like a fraud. Hmm. Um, many have felt like they are here to call the answer to duty, but yet are unable to do so. And having and standing on the sidelines when they know they can be helping has taken a real, I think, emotional toll for people, um, especially these doctors right now. Um, so many of them, however, are trying to do what they can in terms of um, supporting and, you know, um, contact tracing and other things, but that's not, it's really not the same. Um, so I, you know, I, it's, it's interesting, but I would say the other piece of it is, is, you know, my mom and our community are incredibly resilient, um, and very determined. And it really is part of, I think, a historical narrative in this country around you come here and you start from the bottom and you start from scratch and you build a better future for your kids so that they have more options and opportunities than you did. And I think at Upwardly Global, what we're trying to do is reimagine a world where you don't have to start from the bottom and you don't have to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's almost like the American dream is a second generation dream, right? Like immigrants can, can come here and build a better life for their kids. For them, they might have to you know, accept a, a position that's not as fulfilling, right? You know, I, like you're talking about with the, doctors they are doctors they are nurses they are trained as healthcare professionals but they're not able to help out when they're needed most uh, what do you think needs to change in order to get you know healthcare professionals specifically but also all refugees to get to those jobs that they're trained for and use their skills yeah i mean it's a big question yeah. and i say it's a big question because um, first of all, there are many barriers, but there's also a distinction between some of these really highly regulated industries like healthcare um, and some industries which are not as regulated, um, like technology and STEM, where you still see people really struggle to get into the job market. So if you even just use that as an example, because those barriers are kind of less um, or there are, there are fewer barriers that, that they have to overcome it's still a real challenge. And I think intention matters, right? I think if we, first of all, it's, uh, there, is a, there are systems in place which do not recognize or value foreign education and foreign work experience. Um, our work uh, places are filled based on your networks. And if you come here with no networks, it will be very difficult for you to get in. 85% of jobs in the United States are placed through network. And so those two factors already make it difficult. And I think intention really does matter. So we know for minority voices to influence culture that we need to reach a critical mass in our companies, in our businesses, and that's around 25 to 30%. So when companies make a commitment 
like Accenture recently did. Accenture made a commitment to increase Black and Latino employees to 25% by 2025. That's meaningful. And that's meaningful because then it requires them to reflect on their own internal systems that hinder that talent from walking through their doors today. Um, and some of that is really around the whole, like, how do we recruit people, right? So how do we increase aperture of how we think of people's skills? Um, how do we do that at also the mid and high um, level leadership levels? So it's not only entry level jobs. So how are we doing it throughout the company? How are we creating entry points for people? We have wonderful returnship programs for um, women and men who have left for childcare and want to get back into their industries. How can we imagine some of those returnship programs for people like our community who have experience from their home countries, but might be out of the job market for a year or two working survival jobs to get back into their professions? How are we creating entry points for them? And then how do we really build cultural sensitivity? Because a lot of it is uh, how we translate and how we present our, our, our culture and what our expectations are in the U.S. workforce around how people present their culture. Um, so one small example that we always use is like in the United States, we're very individualistic. We always use the word I, me. When you talk about what your contributions are, we want to know not what the team's contributions are, what the team achieved. We want to know what you specifically did to help the team achieve those accomplishments, right? And in other cultures, that sort of I, individual mentality is actually not culturally appropriate. And so how do we allow people to present and not be um, shaved off through the process um, because of some of these cultural sensitivities that get lost in translation? Mm. How do you think companies can craft their workplace culture in order to be not just accepting of uh, underrepresented groups, but appealing to them as well. You know, you see these companies, like you said, Accenture, and there's there's other companies that are doing good things and making important statements and commitments. But how do you, what would you say to these companies about how you can get from those statements to real concrete changes in their culture and their hiring practices that can benefit these underrepresented groups? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing we know is, is when underrepresented groups are brought in in entry-level jobs, the retention rates actually are not very high because they don't see themselves reflected in middle management. Right. They don't see themselves reflected in higher-level management. And so I think we need to recognize that it's not just creating a pipeline at the entry level, but it's creating a pipeline and cultivation of upward mobility within the company for these individuals. I think the second thing is really mentorship. Like mm. I cannot, we cannot underestimate the power of mentorship. Each one of us has had someone in our lives that has supported us, encouraged us, opened a door for us. And for really for immigrants, when they're coming into a new US style workplace, a company that they're learning, they actually don't have some of those network advantages that other new employees might have. Um, and so mentorship for us, for that population, really needs to start on day one. It needs to be part of the onboarding process. And so I think the other thing really is, is how are you rebuilding robust mentorship and how are we allowing it to start in the onboarding process um, to ensure that we're allowing people to be set up for success? 
And then I think it's an openness to recognize that um, it's a two-way streak, right? It's not only that immigrants and refugees have something to learn from their U.S.-born colleagues, but it's also that they have something to learn from their immigrant and refugee colleagues and to be able to create that space for people to interact um, and to share um, about their stories and, and to take time for that. So the ethical argument for equity is self-evident, frankly, but sadly it doesn't motivate people in positions of powers the same way that financial benefit does. What is the business case for equity in the workplace? Well, I think there's a business case for equity in the workplace, and I think there's a business case for really investing in an immigrant workforce. Mm. So I would say the business case for equity in the workplace is, is pretty clear. We know that inclusive companies are six times more likely to be innovative. We know that inclusive companies are 2.3 times, have enjoyed 3.2 times higher cash flow per employee. We know that employees who feel included are 43% more committed to their organization, which translates to higher retention rates. We know that employees who feel included are 51% more likely to recommend their workplace as a great place to work, which is great for pipeline. Yeah, that's a big especially one. Especially looking at diverse candidates. And we also know that more than 70% of millennials want people, um, want the people they work with to function as a second family. So. I think there's a, a real business case around diversity and inclusion, and I think most people know that. I think the business case for really why you should be investing in an immigrant workforce is, you know, for, you know, we have 10,000 baby boomers retiring a day, right? Pre-COVID, 10,000 baby boomers are retiring a day. And by 2050, 83% of growth in the working age population will come from immigrants and the children of immigrants. Oh, wow. So they are the future growth of our workforce in a not too distant future. And so imagining how do we ensure that we're really integrating these individuals into our workforce because they're the future of our workforce. I think the second thing that's important though is, is that in the past five years, close to 50% of work authorized immigrants have a bachelor's degree or higher. So the people who are coming in who are gonna be our future workforce are higher and higher skilled. And so I think this is a population that has a real opportunity to address pain points. I think during this pandemic, we've seen, we've still seen job openings. And a lot of those job openings are in the mid-skill level, right? So I think there's a real opportunity to understand that this is an untapped talent pool that is here that we can be leveraging and that you know they've invested in their education and their professional experience. And now they're bringing that here. And gosh, what is what a win is that for us? Um, so I would say there's there's a business case for both. Yeah, and it's uh, it's not just that it's a that you should be open to hiring immigrants and refugees. It's that you should be really seeking them out because that that's where you can get some of the most talented, most driven people, right? Right. And we've had tons of data that demonstrates that the retention rate amongst refugees, for example, is much, much higher than retention rates for U.S. born because they're really committed to that first employer who's going to take and make an investment in them and give them a chance. Um, And so I think that speaks volumes. I think the other thing is, is, you know, we are we're currently working on a project with Deloitte around sort of these human enduring human capabilities that employers are looking for, like creativity, 
like um, innovation, like self-reliance. And, and these are capabilities that translate across cultures and they translate across borders. And these are things that immigrants and refugees bring. And so I think it's a real, it really demonstrate the, demonstrates that there's a value add there. Mm. So I know you get a lot of questions from people who want to help your cause, but I'm wondering about the people that you're trying to help. What are their most common questions? What do you hear from these immigrants and refugees that are coming into this country? You know, they, I'm sure they have a lot on their mind. <laughs> I mean, a lot of them, so various things, but I think for, for a lot of them, it's really, will my skills translate into the United States? I'm a biomedical researcher from Belarus. Can I get a job here? Um, so I think it's really, do I have a shot? Do I have an opportunity? I think a lot of it is um, networking is a very American mm. trait. And it is not something that you need in order to get a job in many other places in the world. And so a lot of their questions is, is what is networking and, and how do I do it? And how do I build a network? Um, and so that speaks to both what can people do for these immigrants, but also one of the main questions that they have. And then I think a lot of them, you know, it's, they've taken a, a real hit in their self-confidence um, and there's a real like dip in their belief that they are valuable and can contribute. Many of them come to us asking, do I need to reinvest in my education? Do I need to go back and get a degree in the United States? Because a US degree is better recognized than a degree from the University of Baghdad, for example. And oftentimes our answer is no, you do not need to go back to get a degree in order to be competitive in this market with your skill set. Um, so those are really some of the questions that people come with. And I would say what's interesting because we work with a vulnerable population, they are so razor sharp focused on the job, right? They, it's not, um, they're, not, they're not necessarily asking us questions around other pieces of their lives. They really want to understand what do I need to do to get back into my career? And um, so it's, it's a real joy to help them on that journey. You know, this isn't a question that I had thought of before. I didn't prepare for this, but I'm just curious. What are the structural barriers to getting companies to recognize uh, international education? You know, is this something you need a, a bill to go through Congress to change this? Or is it just a, a company by company change that needs to happen? It's, it's really shifting mindsets. Mm. That, that's really it. Um, there are a lot of industries where we can assess somebody based on skill. Um, and we don't necessarily have to assess them based on what specific university they went to. But most of our hiring processes are very much revolving around what university you went to and, and do I know it? Um, it's brand in a, in a lot of ways. And so in a lot of cases, no, you, you don't need some kind of a regulatory change. You need a shift in mindset. Um, but that shift in mindset also means a shift in like understanding who immigrants are. Um, a lot of questions we get from HR are, is, are these, do these people need a sponsorship mm. for a visa? And our response is no, they're legally here. And part of that is, is because especially for large fortune 500 companies, they, um, they have an H1B or like 
a skilled um, visa program in their companies where they, they recruit talent from abroad. And again, they're recruiting talent either from their competitors abroad or they're recruiting from top universities that they know of abroad, right? So again, it's that similar model of where do we go for our recruitment pool? And um, how can we then open that up and reimagine if, we, if we're only going to a set number of universities and we're only going to our competitors to recruit for mid and high skill level roles, for example, how can we actually think about adjacent industries? How can we actually think about skills? How can we actually open up how we evaluate somebody's skills and not necessarily only evaluate, only, but primarily evaluate their college um, and the companies that they worked at? So I would say it's, it's really, it's a mindset change and it's really providing people with knowledge. Um, similarly with refugees, a lot of people don't understand that refugees are legally in the United States, that they're on a pathway to a green card and they have the right to work. I want to shift gears a little bit and take it back to your own personal experience with workplace culture. Uh, unlike a lot of our guests, you've worked for both nonprofits and for-profit organizations. What's the difference in your experience between the two of those in terms of culture? So I would say in a nonprofit, people are there because they are passionate about the work and the mission, and they have some kind of a personal connection to it. And that is really what drives them. And so I think the expectations that they have about what they get from their work is really a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of clear purpose, and a sense of how is their voice being lifted up to contribute to the mission of the organization? How are their perspectives contributing to the mission of the organization. So I think in a lot of ways, culturally, the expectations and how you organize yourself around nonprofit work is very different than you would in a for-profit. Um, and in a, in a for-profit, from my work experience, there is much uh, a higher comfort level with um, hierarchy, a uh, higher comfort level with how decision-making happens and how it comes down. Um, and that expectation that work really should be fulfilling so much of your own identity is a little less so. There's more of a of a different balance there. Yeah, I know. Purpose has become so important in workplace cultures in general. And, uh, you know, I think nonprofits have a bit of an edge when it comes to that. <laughs> I'm sure you, you might feel similarly. So uh, speaking of Upwardly Global, um, there are a lot of people like myself, who are inspired by what you're doing there, but they might not know how best to help out. What can we do to support Upwardly Global specifically, but immigrants and refugees and their communities at large? So if, if you are an employer and you, or a hiring manager and you're looking to hire somebody, like consider this talent pool as a source of talent and hire them. If you are working with somebody who happens to be from an immigrant background, who is new to the country, who is just learning the culture, act as a mentor to them or, men or volunteer to mentor one of our job seekers. Um, industry knowledge, uh, building their, helping them make connections and building networks is incredibly powerful, um, but also being a resource for advice um, is also incredibly powerful. So I would say there's 
so much that we could be doing to really lift and elevate this this community and lean in. Just so we're plugging this properly, how can people uh, contribute to Upwardly Global? How can we donate? Thank you. So you can donate by going to our website at upwardlyglobal.org and hitting the donate button, and we would be thrilled to have contributions. Who was the best boss you ever had? The best boss I ever had was a woman who was a refugee and taught me that to be kind um, and to be kind to myself and to give myself permission um, to be gracious and um, who taught me how to really bring people along when it comes to wanting to achieve something. What's one thing about how your workplace culture has changed in the last year that surprised you? It has surprised me that we are so much more intentional about making space to connect on a personal level so that now we really take time out in the beginning of meetings just to chat and to connect on random things um, than we've ever done before, where it's mostly business as usual. So if you could snap your fingers and remove a corporate buzzword or phrase from the universe, what would it be? Pipeline issue. (laughs) A lot of people say that we have challenges with pipeline to get diverse candidates in, and that's just not true. Bit of an excuse. A lack of imagination. Hmm, Yeah. What technology should we use more of, and what technology should we use less of? I use the chat function much more now, Um, so Gchat, and rely less on email as a result. It's a lot more immediate. And it allows for a conversation. Who are your heroes? My hero is my mom. And she raised me and taught me everything I needed to know and gave me the, the belief that I could change the world. Well, she should be very proud. What does your ideal workplace culture look like? It's a place where people of all colors and backgrounds are and are on and climbing every rung of the corporate ladder where we see these people feel safe and we see them feel um, expected to bring their unassimilated authentic selves to work every day. And and that's because we know that their differences um, are recognized and respected. What's the last thing you read that stuck with you? It could be a book, an article, a tweet. Yes. um, It was Kamala Harris's um, speech and and where really she talked about having um, being where she is today because of the generations of women before her who paved the way in history to be to, to make space for her and how she will not be the last one in that space and I think for us at upwardly global we look forward to creating pathways for many more immigrants and the children of immigrants to be able to achieve their potential. Thank you so much for joining us at The Workplace. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me and being such a great host and for allowing us to talk about this issue, which is so timely and important.
Now it's time for Tangible Takeaway, where we take big ideas out of long-term storage and painstakingly restore them bit by bit. First, injecting the frame with a B72 resin to stabilize the wood. Then, with utmost care, gently cleaning them with gelled solvents and soft cotton swabs, slowly revealing the pristine original underneath. And finally, sealing it with the Regal Res Ultraviolet Blocking Conservators Varnish with the Tinuvin 292 Stabilizer before returning them to their rightful place, hanging in the Louvre bathroom. The first is that much like the past, the future of the American workforce depends largely on immigrants and refugees. Highly skilled and highly motivated, they'll bring a much-needed influx of education, innovation, and loyalty to professions in desperate need of qualified candidates, like healthcare, biotech, engineering, software development, and many more. As Gina pointed out in the interview, by 2050, 83% of the growth in our working age population will come from immigrants and the children of immigrants. So we don't just have a moral obligation to cast our nets into the immigrant and refugee talent pool, we have a financial one too. A rising tide lifts all ships, and immigrants are the tide. The second is that changing our hiring mindset is not just about creating a pipeline for underrepresented groups at the entry level. It's about cultivating upward mobility within the company, a ladder instead of a pipeline. That means mentoring, continuing education, competitive salaries, and tailored recognition programs to reinforce retention and inspire great work. Luckily, it's a self-sustaining system. The more people like themselves they see represented in middle management, upper management, executives, C-suites, and boardrooms, the more they'll feel comfortable taking on extra responsibility and the less they'll look elsewhere for positions. The third is that, as a child of a second-generation immigrant, I'm in a weird space, but one that's familiar to a lot of Americans. The struggles and triumphs of my immigrant family isn't in the dim past of great-great-grandparents, it's in the stories my father tells me about growing up in rural New Jersey with two fresh-off-the-boat Italian parents. But I've also been the beneficiary of a lot of unearned privilege since I grew up without the shadow and stigma of first-generation immigrant parents looming over me. It's a familiar recipe for complacency, one many American-born citizens have internalized without thinking about much, if at all. The American fantasy of having to work hard, paying your dues, and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps is just that, a fantasy. But we can break the spell by supporting new immigrants and refugees directly, not just in our thoughts and tweets. It could be a monetary donation to an organization like Upwardly Global. Or it could be leading the charge at your organization to reform the hiring practices to focus more on underrepresented groups. Or it could be mentoring an immigrant or refugee in your community, giving them access to your connections and knowledge of workplace culture so they can find their place in it and thrive once they're there.
episode was written and read by yours truly, with additional writing, production, and sound design by Daniel Foster Smith. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace wherever you get your podcasts. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com.